Good morning, friends. Is that one reason that you uh, don't have uh, your devotions in Leviticus? Well, uh, believe it or not, that's one of the more important passages in Scripture. Leviticus chapter 23 is significant, and today I'm going to attempt to help you understand why it is so significant. A.W. Tozer said, what comes to mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. What comes to mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. So, what comes to mind when you think about God? If you could think about that for a minute, or a second rather, what is it that comes to mind when you think about God? Well, there it is, right in front of you, what's most important about you. Today we're going to begin our second pass through Mark chapters 14 through 16, and I'm calling this pass a theology of the cross, a theology of the cross. Theology, of course, is the study of God, and so a theology of the cross would be God's perspective on the cross of Jesus Christ. What does God think about the cross of Jesus Christ? I want us to think clearly about this and about what God has to say about our eternal well-being as it relates to the cross of Jesus Christ. So why a theology of the cross? Why are we going through Mark chapters 14 through 16 one more time with a focus on theology of a cross? Well, thinking theologically, and this goes back a little bit to what Tozer was saying, thinking theologically is going to deepen us. Thinking theologically is going to help us to consider what in fact is on God's mind concerning the cross of Christ and that thinking, our thinking, about God and his perspective will give us a deeper appreciation and love for God. And if there is a goal of a pastor, it is to deepen the love of God in his people. That is something I want for you. I want you to love God more. Because if you love God more, your life is exceedingly better. John MacArthur wrote this, the cross represents the apex of redemptive history, the ratification of the new covenant, the final atonement for sin, the epitome of divine mercy, the necessary object of saving faith, and the only hope of eternal life. The cross is critical, isn't it? Friends, the, the cross of Jesus Christ is not just the end of the most amazing life ever lived. No, it's much more than that. The cross of Jesus Christ is the most important focal point of everything we believe about God. Whatever you think about God, minus the cross, you have nothing. It was at the cross of Jesus Christ that God's perfect justice met his unmerited grace and infinite wisdom. At the cross, the wisdom of God made a way for the love of God to pardon sinful and rebellious, undeserving enemies of God without jeopardizing the justice and holiness of God. Because if God just sweeps our sin under a rug, he loses his justice, he loses his holiness, and ceases to be God. 
An understanding of the theology wrapped up in the cross of Christ is deep, it's profound, and it's eminently practical. Yes, practical. Theology must be practical. If theology isn't practical, it's bad theology. My plan over the next couple of months is to handpick important theological points that weren't able to be covered in our first pass um, through the gospel, Mark chapter 14 through 16. We kind of sprinted through that, if you remember, during the Lent season. Now during the second pass, we're going to be able to slow down, really soak in all the wonder and glory found in the text concerning the theology of the cross. So if you have your Bibles, open with me to Mark chapter 14, and we'll hunt for something theological here as we start reading through Mark 14. And when we do, we'll stop and we'll talk about it. Or actually, I'll talk to you about it. Okay? Mark chapter 14, verse 1. Are you ready? It was now two days before the Passover and Feast of Unleavened Bread. Stop. Okay. So we didn't get too far into Mark 14, and we have to talk about theological matters. And which is why we listen to Leviticus 23 being read. When you have things like the Passover, or any feast really, any feast of the Lord that Israel celebrated, it is deeply theological. And so, instead of just bypassing this as if it were some kind of calendar marker, we need to dive in because it's much more than that. It's a theological marker here for us. So let's look at the feast of the Lord and see what we can learn about the mind of God. Dive into a little bit of theology here and see if it doesn't pay some spiritual dividends. As we know, holidays are a big deal worldwide. Every people group has holidays and they're intended to be enjoyed. Holidays are often in memory of significant political events, heroes uh, of their particular people group or religious beliefs being celebrated like Christmas and Easter that we celebrate. There are thousands of holidays worldwide, literally. In a significant contrast though, the God of the universe instituted only seven holidays. And you heard all seven described in Leviticus 23. Those are the only holidays that God endorses. The importance of man-made holidays pale, in fact, in comparison to the importance of these seven God-initiated holidays. In other words, they are significant. The Bible speaks of these holidays in many places. They're all over, sprinkled all over, Old and New Testament. All seven are listed in chronological order only in Leviticus 23. So there are three important points that, important points that I want to share with you concerning these seven feasts of the Lord that he initiated. Three points, important points that I think, and there are more by the way, I'm just pointing out three because they're significant for our particular study in Mark 14 through 16. The first significant point concerning the feast of the Lord is that these seven feasts of the Lord were given to Israel. Given to Israel. The Jews are God's covenant people. They play a significant role in bringing, now listen, 
The Jews play a significant role in bringing God's goodness, God's grace, God's mercy to all of mankind. They are the conduit. Second important point concerning the Feast of the Lord, these seven Feasts of the Lord typify or picture the sequence, the timing, and the significance of major events in the Lord's redeeming work. Which is why Leviticus 23 is so important. All right, so these seven feasts picture the sequence, the timing, and the significance of the major events in the Lord's life and redemptive work. It begins at the cross of Christ where Jesus voluntarily gave himself for the sins of the people, which is associated with Passover. We'll get into that in a minute. And then these seven feasts climax in the future at the establishment of the messianic kingdom at his second coming, which is connected to the Feast of Tabernacles. Okay? Now I know this is a lot of info, but my focus today is on Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And I think you'll, you'll, you'll be with me before this is all over with, so don't, don't get lost in the weeds here, all right? There is no need, in fact, as we start to unpack these feasts, to do exegetical gymnastics to make these appointed feasts conform to specific events in the Messiah's life. God intended for us to see these things plainly. This isn't some hidden code in the Bible. This is right there on the surface for each of us to benefit from, to enjoy, to be encouraged by. The seven feasts of the Lord are appointed feasts. If you'll remember back, or you can flip back there, Leviticus chapter 23, verse 1 said, these are appointed feasts. God established them, appointed them for the people to observe, to celebrate, to enjoy. They're appointed feasts because they represent the times God met with his people to bless them. The three of the seven feasts Require, were required attendance by all Israeli males. If you're a male, you had to show up in Jerusalem three times a year or you were in sin. You had to show up, which is why Jesus went to Jerusalem three times a year from his birth onward until he died at Passover. When all seven events to which these seven feasts point are completed, when all seven events which, to which these seven feasts point are completed, the triumphant end of the ages will be ushered in and a time of consummation will begin. This is, we're talking about the history of the world here, okay? The seven feasts are directly tied to everything human history relates to, everything. This particular uh, direction in the Feast of the Lord uh, is the target and trajectory of all scripture, all human history, are related to these seven feasts, which is why they're the ones that are given by God to us, actually to the Jews, to remember. Prophecy tells us, Old Testament prophecy, tells us that this time of consummation uh, of all history will be a time of completion, a time of satisfaction, a time of eternal joy and bliss. That's how it's going to end for those who embrace Christ, the Passover lamb. So four, listen, four of the seven holidays occur in the spring of the year. 
The fulfillment of those feasts were completed in Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago during his first advent. So four of the seven feasts were completed in Christ's first advent when he was here, incarnation through his death. But their spiritual benefits obviously continue into the future. We're sitting here because the first four were completed in Christ, okay? The final three feasts of the seven, four happened, were fulfilled with Christ's life and death and resurrection. Three, the final three feasts occur in the fall of the year during a small window of time during our months of September and October. And just as the first four Jewish holidays pointed to the Messiah's first coming, guess what the last three point to? His second coming. You're right. This is exactly right. They, they are pinpointing specific events considering future events. <clears throat> so Paul called the final three um, feast of the Lord and what they pointed to the blessed hope. Heard those terms before? Paul was thinking about the final three yet unfulfilled feasts of the Lord when he was talking to Titus, Titus chapter 2, verse 13. The third important point, what I've just been saying the last five minutes was the second important point. The third important point is this. Because of the spiritual realities to which these feasts clearly point are fulfilled in Jesus, here's the good news for this crowd. Everyone has access to God. Let me say that again. Because of the spiritual realities to which these feasts clearly point are fulfilled in Jesus, everyone has access. Everyone can participate. Not just Jews, Gentiles as well. Us, in other words. We, Gentiles. Everyone is invited to enjoy the feasts, which are the blessings of forgiveness and reconciliation with God and future joy and glory with him. We're all invited. This means that all people, even us, can participate in the fulfillment of these Jewish feasts. Leviticus 23 is important. This has been God's plan all along. Before there was an Israel, he intended Israel to be the conduit for spiritual blessings to all of us. Remember what he told Abraham, through you, your offspring, through you and your offspring, all nations of the world will be blessed. Genesis 22:18 mentions that very thing. The promises and blessings given to Abraham are also given to Gentiles to enjoy. So before Christ, we Gentiles, as you know, were separated from God and from his blessings and from his covenants. But with the advent of the second person of the Godhead, Jesus Christ, we can now participate. Remember, the curtain in the temple was what? Torn in two. Everyone now has access to God. And these feasts present that to us. First feast that Mark mentions is the feast of Passover. You see that in verse 1 of Mark 14. Passover. He wasn't just giving us a point in the calendar, which I already mentioned. The Lord's Passover, which is what Mark is referring to, is the foundational feasts of all seven feasts. It's the first 
and most foundational. All the other feasts are built upon the Passover. Without the Passover, the other feasts don't exist. Passover occurs in the spring of the year on the 14th day of the Hebrew month of Nisan, which falls uh, in our months of March and April. And this, this particular feast began the Jewish year for them. The Passover has been celebrated since that time that Moses led the Israelites out of Egyptian slavery 3,500 years ago. Most of you know this story, but I'll repeat it briefly in case you're unfamiliar with it. It was in Egypt that the Passover actually happened. The Passover doesn't rehappen every year they celebrate it or didn't rehappen every year they celebrated it. The Passover happened once. Everything after that first Passover was a memorial of the Passover. All right? And that has significance, by the way. So it was in Egypt that that, that Passover actually happened. The Passover was connected to the 10th judgment plague, if you remember, from God against Egypt and Pharaoh. God told Pharaoh through Moses that unless you let my people go, this final plague will solve this issue. Every firstborn will die in the land of Egypt, including everyone living there, including Israel who lived there. But God presented Israel with a solution, didn't he? The, this, this solution well, it came from God through Moses to the Jewish families to, and told them they were to select a year-old male lamb that had no flaw, no defect, and it was to be taken from their flock on the 10th day of Nisan and kept with the family until the 14th day of Nisan. This would allow each family member to become personally attached to this lamb and it would no longer just be a lamb when it was sacrificed. It would be fluffy that we're sacrificing. All right? And this was intentional. The purpose of this was to impress on the Jewish family the costly nature of the sacrifice. The innocent must die for the guilty. After sacrificing the lamb, every Jewish family was to place the blood where? You remember the story on the doorpost, right? On both doorposts and the lentil, the cross piece. This was an act of faith. This placing the blood of the lamb was an act of faith, um, believing the word of God that in so doing, the angel of death would pass over their house, hence Passover, all right? Their, their firstborn would be spared. And every Passover since that Passover, the first one, is simply a memorial of that event. 3,500 years ago. But the sacrifice of the lamb wasn't the end of the story. It gets so detailed you can dig in and dive in for quite some time and continue to mine out wonderful truths, wonderful gems that relate directly to our Christian experience. We're not going to do that because I want to keep some attendance at Sun Valley Church. All right? But it is a worthwhile study, and I encourage you to look into it. But the sacrifice of the lamb was the beginning of the process. After it was sacrificed, the families would eat this roasted lamb with a specially prepared meal. And the requirement of roasting the lamb was to portray the judgment that the lamb would endure instead of the firstborn. This is why they roasted it over fire. It took on the judgment, the penalty that the firstborn deserved. 
In the same way, the Lamb of God, by the way, the firstborn wasn't just the firstborn here in my immediate family. If you were the dad and a firstborn of your family, you died also, and on and on, through insects, cows, dogs, insects, firstborn, dead. All right? It was <laughs> expansive. But in the same way, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, was, was sacrificed, and he's called the firstborn also, isn't he, in the book of Colossians? The Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, was sacrificed for the salvation of God's people. Jesus' flesh was torn, as was the Passover lamb. His blood was spilt on the cross of Calvary for the sins of the world. God's judgment was taken out on Jesus. He took on all of our punishment, as we heard a few weeks ago, when Jesus said, uh, why have you betrayed me? My God, my God, why have you betrayed me? He took on all the punishment that was due us. Just as the Passover feast was a memorial of the Passover that plainly pictured the sacrifice of the Messiah, the Lord's Supper, listen, is the new memorial, the ongoing memorial of, and celebration of the redemption that innocent Jesus accomplished with his death and his resurrection. So as, as Jews continue to memorialize and celebrate that first Passover, we who have embraced Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior continue to celebrate and memorialize his death on the cross for us in the Lord's Supper, which is why we have the elements. The broken bread, the juice representing what? The broken body and spilt blood. It is our Passover. As we keep our thinking connected to Mark's gospel, it's no coincidence, that, no coincidence that Mark pinpoints in chapter 14, verse 1, the divine timetable of the Passover and unleavened bread feast. Remember, they're sequential. They're related to prophetic timetables. So Mark wants us to know that God's divine plan of the ages is right on track. It's happening just as he has planned. This isn't some, some random event, some sad and tragic thing that's happening to Jesus. No, it has been planned since before the ages, we read in 1 Peter. It is a divine chronological marker. Here's where we are in the process of history, in the trajectory of all time. We are at this place, the Passover and unleavened bread. It's a th it is theology at its best, right here in Mark chapter four, 14, verse one. And remember, theology of the is a study of God, and if we're going to know God, we must dig. And by the way, there's no end to the digging with God because he's infinite. You can study theology, and we will, by the way, if you don't like it now, you will like it if you're in heaven, the study of theology is an eternal study. It will last forever. We will get to know God more deep and in different ways throughout every moment of e e eternal existence, and every moment will be a brilliant revelation of something new and wonderful about God. You're not going to be playing harps on a cloud or golfing 
with golden golf clubs. All right? We're going to be learning more and deeper and beautiful and brilliant things about our Savior. We won't want to leave his presence to go play golf. <laughs> it would be torture to do so. They might be golfing in hell, but it won't be with golden clubs. It's got to be something resistant to heat. <clears throat> so, in this same chapter, there's a theological marker in the same chapter, 14.1, and then if you look at 14.22, we have the institution of the Lord's Supper. This isn't coincidence, folks. Mark's a theologian. He wants us to connect the dots. Mark is reminding us that the Lord's Supper grew out of the Passover, and it now replaces Passover with another celebration of the true Lamb of God. Not all these pictures and types, no. They were wonderful. They accomplished their purpose in pointing us to Jesus, but now the true Lamb of God, the Lamb of God, has in fact died in our place, and the Lord's Supper is our memorial for the true Lamb. And we can't miss that celebration. You must be here. It is not just a memorial. It is a, a nutrition, a spiritual nutrition that you need, that I need to walk faithfully with God, our Savior. There is so much more, friends, in the Passover. I really do hope that you'll look into it a bit. It's available everywhere online. Uh, but uh, I would encourage you to, to do a little digging yourself. <clears throat> Let's look now, though, at the second feast that Mark mentions in verse 1, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The, the feast, this feast, Unleavened Bread, was also appointed by God, and, and it's closely tied to the Passover, which is why Mark mentions them together, which is why they're sequential in Leviticus 23. In fact, this particular feast was to begin the day following Passover. Passover was the 14th on the 15th that began this second feast, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. In fact, it became so common to refer to uh, these together, they would just call it the Passover Feast, and it included, in the Jewish mind, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It also was a reminder to the Jews, this Feast of Unleavened Bread was a reminder to the Jews of God's miraculous deliverance from Egypt, from Egyptian slavery. The very same thing that Passover was to remind them of. So this was the Feast of Unleavened Bread also. It was on the day of the he that the Hebrew nation departed Egypt that there was no time, if you remember the story, for bread dough to rise. We're, on our, we're in a hurry, get out, you know, it's like you trying to get to church on Sunday morning. Let's go, let's go, we gotta get there, we're gonna be late. You know, it's, it's happened in Egypt. We gotta get moving, no time for the bread to rise, take it now. And they did. And this is what the Lord commanded them in Deuteronomy 16.3. You, you shall eat no leavened bread concerning the feast of unleavened bread. You shall eat no leavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat it with unleavened bread. Whatever you're eating, it can't have leaven in it. The bread of affliction. For you came out of the land of Egypt in haste. 
that all the days of your life you may remember that the day when you came out of the land of Egypt. The Feast of Unleavened Bread was to remind them of God's deliverance from Egyptian slavery. Now just for a moment, let your spiritual theological minds wander a bit into what we think about, spiritually think about in terms of slavery. Think about Romans 6. Think about being redeemed. Think about coming out of. There should be some pictures exploding in your brain right now about what we're looking at here. <clears throat> Listen to this. Not only was the eating of leavened foods like bread forbidden during the feast, even the presence of leaven in your home had to be eradicated. Exodus 12, 15, seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person will be cut off from Israel. You think God thinks this is important? Yeah. And it's not just about leavenless bread. Please hang with me. Think theologically with me for a few minutes. Exodus 13, 7. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you. Don't look on leaven. And no leaven shall be seen in anywhere in your territory. It better not be on your neighbor's yard. It better not be anywhere at the store. It got to be gone. What's so bad about leaven? I actually like leavened bread. Right? This was serious business to God. Why? The Jews were required to meticulously, literally, sweep through the house and remove any leaven and then burn it outside the house. It wasn't enough just to refrain from eating or touching or even looking at leaven. You couldn't even store it away. It must be purged. The Feast of Unleavened Bread carries amazing spiritual meaning as you've been considering here in your own mind. The Bible uses the word leaven to describe what? Sin, error, evil. It's called leaven by biblical authors. So leaven is used as a fermenting agent and in a spiritual way, sin works in the same way. Just as leaven permeates the dough, Sin permeates, ferments, sours, and swells into something large in the life of those who allow it. In Matthew 16, 6, Jesus said to this, Jesus said this to them, Watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Paul said something similar in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 6 and 7. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be an that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So there's a connection spiritually between Passover and unleavened bread. And Mark mentions it here for us to think theologically. The prophetic meaning, the, the thing, the feast of unleavened bread pictured, why God included it as one of his seven feasts was the work of Jesus Christ. Bread and leaven doesn't matter to God. What matters is sin and Jesus Christ. The very things which that feast points to. 
Jesus' death on the cross was to pay for the sins that had in fact permeated the lives of every human being. In his death, Jesus removed the sin that infects us. He took it away so that, he, that we may in fact commune with God once again, uninterrupted, unimpeded. Why? Because the leaven of sin has been removed by Christ. 1 Corinthians 5, 8, Paul continues this conversation. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the leaven, unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So Paul's point is clear. For us who have received the sacrifice of the Passover lamb on Calvary, have you done that? Have you received the sacrifice of the Passover lamb on Calvary? Your answer would be yes if you've embraced Jesus. It would be no if you have not. If you have embraced Jesus, you have in fact received the sacrifice of the Passover lamb on Calvary. If that is the case, we have experienced all the benefits of his Passover sacrifice, of his removing of the leaven. But now we must begin, listen, here's the next picture we must begin to live out the Feast of Unleavened Bread in our daily lives. Hence, seven days of leavenless existence after the Passover lamb, after the Passover celebration. This is why these feasts were celebrated together. The Passover lamb provides the removal of leaven. We must remove all sinful leaven that would ferment, sour, and impede our fellowship with God and with each other. The reason that we have struggles in maintaining a, a, a healthy Christian walk is because we have leaven that gets between us and our Savior. The reason that we struggle with our spouses or with our neighbors or with our bosses is because we have leaven in our lives that impedes, that sours, that ferments everything it touches. So we must get rid of it. And we're able to because the Passover lamb took care of it. A little leaven, Paul said, leavens the whole lump. This is Paul's same message in Romans 6. We are no longer to live under the bondage or power of sin. Remember Romans 6? The power of sin was broken on Calvary, we read there. We are free. We are no longer slaves to sin. The sacrifice of the Passover lamb actually worked. But it seems that we continue to believe that we are stuck in sin and that we must obey its evil impulses. That is false thinking. We have been freed from sin, Paul said. In God's sight, we are now unleavened. We are pure. Why? Because we're in Christ. Which is why Paul asked in Romans 6, why do you keep on living as if this weren't true? We need to go through our spiritual houses and sweep out any sin in every corner underneath every piece of furniture, take out all the leaven and burn it so that we can celebrate all that Jesus, our Passover lamb, has in fact accomplished. 1 Corinthians 5, 7. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. We can do this in Christ. He is our Passover lamb. Our lives must be leaven free.
Let's pray. Lord Jesus, our hearts and minds explode with thoughts of thanksgiving and praise as we consider this theology of the cross, the wonderful blessings found in Christ Jesus, our Passover lamb. We do acknowledge that leaven remains, that it's a constant struggle, but we are so thankful that we are seen because of Jesus Christ by God our Father as leaven free in Christ Jesus. Oh, what a blessing it is to know that Jesus took care of our sin problem on Calvary, that our relationship with our Creator has been restored in full. Help us, Holy Spirit, to live this way. Help us to walk circumspectly. Help us to not give place, not give room, not keep secret, secret supplies of leaven in our closets. Help us purge these things, Holy Spirit. Do this for the glory of Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb, and the good of us, his people. We pray this in his name. Amen.